All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. And as you're turning there, uh, let me give you the key truth that I want you to walk away with this morning. It's that all of humanity is united in being thoroughly deformed by sin and in their need for reformation in Christ. Let me say that again. All of humanity is united. I don't care what country you're from. I don't care what age you were born in. I don't care what your history is. I don't care your affiliations. We are utterly united in how thoroughly deformed we are by sin. So it's not as if you could grow up in a certain household and be less deformed by sin than someone who grew up in yet another household. You are absolutely dehumanized by sin. And that's what Paul's going to argue. And we are united in the only way in which that can be changed, which is reformation, the true use of that word, reformation, reformation in Christ alone, by faith alone, through God's grace alone. You don't have a knowledge problem. You don't, you don't have to be caught up to date on the right side of history. You don't have to vote a right way. You don't have to have a certain ideology. You don't have to be vaccinated. You don't have to be unvaccinated. You don't have to be masked. You don't have to be unmasked. What you must be is reformed in Christ. And that should govern how you act toward other people more than anything else. And I'm sad to say to you, that is not what I'm seeing and hearing. And so, we need to repent. And this text would be a great place for us to start. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Romans 3, 9 through 18. What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we step into this, it's important that we keep in mind where we're coming from. So Paul is bringing them uh, closer and closer to the pinnacle, which is not their brokenness, not their sinfulness, not their rebelliousness, but the solution in Christ, the, the, the assurance of pardon that we've been reading week in and week out, which you'll get to hear from in the next couple of weeks, finally we'll get to Jesus, it seems. But he wants to make sure that they have not forgotten and do not forget what is their main problem. Because remember who he's talking to. These are Jews who've converted to Christianity. And in that conversion at the day of Pentecost, went out and shared that hospitably with Roman Gentiles. Remember, a Gentile just means not Jew. So you would have had a lot of different tongues, tribes, and nations represented in the Roman church. So for those of you who think that 
we should have more of a birds of a feather type ideology, you fail to understand Scripture. Revelation 7 is the great picture of all nations coming together. We have a, a picture of a church, and you may say, but yeah, but see, they got into problems, don't you see? Well, Paul doesn't tell them to divide. He doesn't say, well, then in that case, why don't you Jewish Christians go have your own nice little church so you can get along all by yourself? And you various Gentiles, why don't you plant a bunch of different little churches of your own and that's better, a better display of the fruit of the gospel? And so it's important that we be biblical and be careful with the words that come out of our mouths. Yes, there are paths that are easier. You're right. When did the gospel say, let's take the easy path? Do remember that Jesus did ask, may this cup pass from me, and what did God say divinely? No. And if we are shaped by suffering, and the majority of the New Testament calls for us to be a church that suffers well. Do remember that the churches that are commended in the book of Revelation, this wasn't that long ago, surely you have not forgotten that they actually were the churches who were getting pounded by the culture and the political realm and other Christians. And they were small and struggling. And so for us to say we should take a path of easier resistance is patently unbiblical. And so remember that, that Paul is speaking to a group of people who beautifully displayed the gospel but had gotten off somewhere. Remember the Jews, they got kicked out in God's sovereignty for a season, right? And, and the Gentile Christians took over and then the Jews come back in God's sovereignty and say, all right, fine, thank you for holding on to the church, we'll take back over now. And there became a, 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 an argument, a disunity that Paul is now stepping into and using the fullness of the gospel to help try to heal. Because disunity never, hear me, disunity never actually glorifies God. And you may say, but yeah, but don't sometimes people have to part? Yeah, because of sin, not because of God's glory. And so he's bringing them back to make sure that nobody can wiggle out from under and say, well, it was their fault. He's unifying them in their utter deformation, dehumanization by sin. Remember, he's been taking to task the Jewish Christians in particular because they had the law, the covenants, the promises. They had all of these things that should have pointed them to being ambassadors of reconciliation. The Abraham covenant alone should have helped them see their purpose. The same purpose, by the way, which the church has. So if the same purpose is for us to, to bless the nations which Paul, by the way, calls the gospel in Galatians 3, the Abrahamic covenant, that is. If that is what we're to be, how are, what, what are we doing when we divide and let things that are unchristlike creep in and push us away from each other? Various ideas that have consequences. And so Paul is bringing them to a place that he wants them not to forget. He's not rubbing their face in worm theology. He's trying to help them actually see there are some things you need to keep in view 
that will rob you of your Christ-likeness. So first question I have for us, it's a question I've asked before in some form or fashion. It's one we have to continually ask ourselves because we know nothing is neutral. Can somebody with a straight face find me a completely neutral news website that just reports the facts? I'd love it. I'd love to find it. You can't even you can't even suggest that, or just anything that's neutral, truly neutral, that is not in some way, shape, or form trying to advance some sort of worldly directive. And so, what is it that you are currently being formed by? You need to assess this. You need to think about what you are taking in and imbibing. And maybe you would say, well, Mr. Barm, you need to do the same in your right. It is something that I do try to take stock of. It's one of the reasons why I frustrate so many of you because you can't quite pin me down. Because I am uninterested in the sides. I'm uninterested in the temporary kingdoms that are going to fall. That didn't originate in eternity and they won't make it into eternity. And you're right. Well, that's easy for you to say, wait till some real suffering comes. You try being a pastor. You think it ain't here? You think it ain't already? You think it's still not yet? No. It is already, in so many respects, to try to love people, especially a room full of people that are break up into thirds, which drives you crazy, and, and in some measure... I have to admit, I love that. Hopefully, it drives you to Jesus. But for too many of you, it's not. Because you think you're superior in your thinking, and the book of Romans is calling you out. You need to repent. And so, what's forming you? What's shaping your thinking and actions? You need to take account of this. You need to take stock. Because of what Paul warns us of here. Notice Again, he's asking a question because he recognizes that the Jews would be saying, well, what was the point? Why did God pick us if it doesn't matter? Is that a good question? It actually isn't a good question. He picked them for his purposes, for service in his kingdom to be instruments in his redemptive hands. And that was clear. They chose not to do that because it was harder. It is hard to love other people, right? I get it. I get why so many of you choose not to. I get why so many of you choose anger instead of humility. Makes total sense to me. I've done it for years. But they were given what they were given not to make them better off. Not to evidence that he loved them more, but instead to equip them to go into the nations. To share his love, his promises, his covenant goods. To break out the best stuff hospitably. That's what he called them to do. That message has not changed. Because we could say, what good is being part of a church? Are we any better off? Am I any better off for for getting gussied up and coming here this morning and listening to you yell at us for how we think and vote and do and be? Well, that's a bad question. 
Because if what you came here for was to not be formed further into the image of Christ, you who are deformed by sin and dehumanized, well, then you're here for the wrong reason. We are not gathering together in worship to, to, for any other purpose than to be shaped into the character of God and be formed into the image of Christ. That is the stated goal and purpose every single week. And given that we are in a fallen world, and given that we are still some mix of saint-sinner, that is going to be a struggle. And sparks will fly, and you're not going to like some of what I say, and I'm not going to like some of what you say and do, and yet we're family. We're trying to figure it out. If we are willing to hang in and let Christ be the prejudice. And so, Paul makes it very clear. You are utterly united. Doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter where you were born to in your brokenness. And beautifully, notice what he does. He takes the very scripture that the Jewish Christians should have known. And he does this mashup. And I'm not going to point out everywhere where it comes from. But he, he uses Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Proverbs, Psalms. He, this is like the greatest hits of the worst of the worst. To declare just how thoroughly deformed and dehumanized you are. See, I think that we don't take, we, we, we think we take sin seriously. I don't think we do. I hear it in some of how you talk. Some of the ways in which you think you have a superior understanding to everybody around you, that no one before has understood it as good as you. And if people would just listen to you, if they would just act right, if they would just get their thinking right, this world would be a better place. That's quite the presumption given the actual problem of the world. And so often what we offer are solutions that aren't biblical at all. We act as if we have a knowledge and behavioral problem. No, we do. Don't get me wrong. But the solution, because of how deeply deformed and dehumanized we are, cannot be more knowledge and better behavior. The heart must be transformed, which is what he is bringing us to but we got to go through this valley first. Now notice how, how absolute the language is. None is righteous. No, not one. Just in case you, you were to say, well, I know some pretty nice folks. In preparation for this sermon, uh, I chose to go on Twitter. Now, I didn't join Twitter. I have never commented on Twitter, but I chose just to wander around a little bit and just see, hey, how do people talk to each other? How do they act? And again, I get it. Twitter is a, a, its own thing, and, and, and that's to be critiqued. But it does have representatives from lots of different camps, even still, even with the other extant things that have shown up from Facebook to Parler to these other things, right? And so uh, um, it was interesting and, and I'm going to need a soul cleanse after this. I, it was horrible. Like it, 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 I mean, from grandmothers, somebody's grandmother on there just ripping people left and right, to ICU nurses, to doctors, to preachers, to so-called Christians, it was absolutely a deep dive into just abject swill. And it further convinced me of the truth of the scripture here. That if this is how we talk about and to one another, it was amazing. It makes me, I'm like, would you ever talk to someone this way in person? 
And by the way, no one side out the other, just so we're clear. And I don't think the other sides are bots trying to make the poor this side look worse than that side. And so there is none who is righteous. Because what's the standard? What's Paul told us is the plumb line? God. So there was no evidence in any of the things that I read, and I gave it a good few hours, disgustingly, uh, that there was no steadfast love, there was no long-suffering, there was no mercy, there was no forgiveness, there was no justice of any real kind. There was nothing that looked anything like God. That should trouble us and cause us to evidence and look at the plank in our own eye. If God is the plumb line, and he is, then are you looking at your speech and your behavior according to the plumb line? Are you ever asking, does what I say reflect any of the character of God? Does what I do reflect any of the character of God? Does this, would anybody go, man, that looks like Jesus? So there is none who is righteous, no, not one, And then he begins the bodily descent. No one who understands. Let me start at the top. You are broken in your thinking. You are broken in your capacity to understand. Now, let me pause here and tell you what he's not saying. This doesn't mean you cannot become an astrophysicist. This doesn't mean that you can't invent really cool stuff that will benefit the world. This doesn't mean that you can't learn math or history, or anything else. What this does mean is you are broken in your ability to understand the gospel, the very thing that we are charged to carry forward. You cannot get to the gospel through your own understanding because of your radical brokenness and selfishness. And then he goes on, moving a little further down the body. He says, no one even seeks after God. So now he's moved to the heart. Not only do you not have the reasonableness or logic or ability to get to the gospel in and of yourself, you wouldn't want it if you could. You would rebel against it if you could. In fact, Moses says this to the very people of God. As he is departing, remember, he doesn't get to go into the promised land physically because he had sinned against the Lord. And so he makes it very clear to them, the problem is not inability, It is your heart. You are in open rebellion, and you would never go if you had every chance possible. This is how thoroughly you are broken. Head, heart, and further. And then he says, not only are you that individually, but all have turned aside, and they together encourage worthlessness. Now, not worthlessness in God's eyes, but worthlessness in every way that matters. Because remember, God comes for his enemies, of which we were all numbered, by the way. God comes for those who are broken in head and heart, those who are open in rebellion, those who have rendered themselves worthless, essentially, even by the world's standards. No one does good, and just in case, no, not even one. Now again, good by what standard? Who's the standard? 
God in his holiness. It is good compared to him. True good always exalts him and those involved. Always. That's a pretty good measure, don't you think? For you to take a look at your speech and your actions and ask, does this both exalt God and benefit or exalt those around me? You should always do both. And sometimes that includes calling for repentance, which is what so often we desperately need but absolutely refuse to engage. And he goes on to touch on one of the key things that the Lord has given to us as his creation uniquely. This is part of how we are crowned with honor and glory. We can communicate, not just for food or for reproduction or for uh, just, just basic things. No, we actually can speak words that bring life and, by virtue of that, words that deal death. And so he wants to make sure that, that that key piece, that key gift to us that is unique in all of creation. Yes, I've heard parrots who can sing Jimmy Buffett songs. And that is a neat parlor trick. But I have yet to see a parrot write a song better than Jimmy Buffett. And they don't do anything original. It's all mimicking. It's miming. We have been granted language as creative force, as life-giving force, and unfortunately, in our fallenness, that which brings death, anger, anxiety, fear, destruction. Notice what he says. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now, do you find it interesting that he spent the most time detailing the problems of your mouth and how you use words? He didn't go into a bunch of stuff on your heart. He didn't go into a bunch of stuff on your head. He just made the point, those things are broken. And that leads to your misuse of speech, but he really goes into detail on that. Now, these words, I think, might be helpful to us because I think that we have come to a place that we think, based on what somebody else says or does, that we can say or do anything we want. Is that true? Is that the gospel? Does Christ exemplify that in his... Now, you gotta, you got to think. Of all the Twitter fights, the Facebook fights, the Instagram fights, the TikTok fights, the Facebook fights, the parlor fights, the fights in person, the fights on the phone, you you, you have to admit that none of those can compare to having someone spit in your face and rip out your facial hair and malign you. You may say, well, it comes pretty close. No, it does not, especially when you have the kind of power Jesus does. Because I know some of y'all. Some of y'all would actually call down fire from heaven based on a tweet and and destroy someone's entire lineage just to ensure that that idea never rises from the grave again. Do you know that Jesus had that power? The restraint and love that he showed whose image we are being formed into, and you, on a lesser issue, cannot show anything close to what Christ showed? 
You need to repent. And praise be to God, he loves us enough that that is not all that we are left with, which is scorched earth. We need to be much more careful with our mouths in all forms of communication because you are doing, we are doing significant damage to the witness of the church. You are causing people who sit in this very church to struggle to be around you. You are causing neighbors to say, if they knew what church you went to, they would never visit, I don't care how much hospitality we would roll out in a thousand years. That should never be because of your mouth. It's going to be, but it should never be because of your mouth. And notice the kind of descriptions. Do you speak of others with bitterness? Is there a bitterness in your voice about what's going on? Now you may say, well, I mean, there are some crazy things going on. Agreed. There are some things going on that need to be questioned and challenged. Agreed. But how matters significantly. And the next generation is listening to us. And what generation is going to look for a solution among the ashes of bitterness, curses, and the venom of asps? We need to recognize that we biblically are challenged. James makes it very clear. Your tongue sets fire to entire forests with the way you speak of things. This should not be so. This is an area that we should stop at this point in our culture and really get down on our faces and ask the Lord to help us. Because that bitterness that you have toward other people, I'm watching it have an impact on your ability to worship. I'm watching it have an impact on your ability to love Jesus. I'm watching it have an impact on your ability to do the work that the Lord has called you to do because you have become so bitter and so full of curses and such the venom of asp is on your lips that it is hurting you as much as it is hurting anyone else. And if I love you, shouldn't I say so? And not only is this a vocalic problem, it becomes a behavioral problem, right? Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Is anybody able to look on your life and say, man, there is a peace that kind of surpasses understanding about these folks, there's some crazy stuff going on in this world, and everybody's got opinions. But this person is able to navigate it with an understanding of the sovereignty of God and a hope that hardly makes any sense to me at all, but it is attractive. It makes me want to hear what this person thinks and has to say. Or do they look at your life and say, wow, this cat's miserable. <laughs> All they see is ruin. They don't know anything about peace. They're always anxious and spun up about stuff. See, because the problem, as he summarizes it finally in verse 18, is there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the fundamental problem. 
This is what we learn from Proverbs, that this is the thing that, this is where salvation begins. This is where the, the beginning of understanding and wisdom starts, is do you even fear the Lord? Do you care about what he cares about? Do you care about how he has declared his character ought look in this world? Are you at all struggling with that? Or do you think that just being counted in is enough? Because Paul here is saying no. That's not enough. And it's not that you have to earn your salvation. It's that you need to live in such a way that evidences it. Remember, how you live matters. He's been saying that all throughout the book of Romans thus far. And he's only going to get louder in how he says it. And because we recognize how thoroughly dehumanizing sin is, we would not want to perpetuate it more than is necessary. So here's what I would say to you. It would be good for you, every single one of you, to take this, these, this mashup of scriptures, and to, with courage, because you know that Christ loves you and you are forgiven in him, Pray through it, asking the Holy Spirit to show you where you are looking more unsaved than like Christ. And if what I just said caused you to kick against the goad, now you know where the problem lies. If this causes you to go, I ain't going to do that. Who's Cameron telling? Okay. You then have to deal with what is it you're actually truly afraid of. Why would you not want to know if you in some way, shape, or form were not evidencing Christ or displaying the very opposite of what Christ is? You, you do know that we have the capacity in our redeemedness to return like dogs to our own vomit. That is our predilection. We are not yet what we will be. We still need the means of grace. And so this is a good list for us to remember who we were without Christ and what it is that we frequently will return to. Do you have the courage, let's go a step further, to get with somebody else who knows you well and ask them what you look like as compared to this list? Do you have the courage to then hear from them what they may have to say if they truly love you to tell you the truth? Can you, can you not hold it against them? Are you willing to put yourself in the dock at all? Because this is what Paul is taking and doing with them. Remember, he's talking to Christians. He's not just reminding them so they can move on and forget. He's showing them what they have returned to in their disunity, in their infighting, in their attempts to say they are better than this other racial, national people group. Listen to what John Stott says about this, because I think this is important. He says, our first response to Paul's indictment then, exactly what I just called for us to do, should be to make it as certain as we possibly can that we have ourselves accepted this divine diagnosis of our human condition as true. What he just said was, we need to take sin very seriously and recognize that we have been thoroughly deformed and dehumanized by it apart from Christ. 
and that we have fled from the just judgment of God on our sins to the only refuge there is, namely Jesus Christ who died for our sins. So the only cure for this thorough deformation and dehumanization is the reformation that is possible in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. Which, by the way, if that's true for you, is it not also true for those you count as enemies in the world at current? You keep trying to solve their problem by getting them to see how stupid they are. You keep trying to solve their problem by trying to stagger them with your intellect, insight, and sarcasm. Trust me, if that worked, I'd be a bazillionaire. But I'm not. We keep trying to solve the world's problems with behavioral modification. How is that project going, my history buffs? It ain't going so hot. And what we keep proving is what the great theologian, who I will not name for the good of her soul, said one time, I know the truth and I don't care. That should not be our confession and testimony, but that is much of the world's confession and testimony. And they need the same cure. So how will they get that cure if we don't recognize that's the cure they need and that we are the instruments in the Redeemer's hands that are called to hospitably offer them the gospel by which we have been saved in the same hospitality. If you don't stop hating your enemies, you will never grow. You will never experience the fullness of God's love for you. You will be the one who is deformed and suffer, not them. And so we need to take serious stock of these things as stock calls us to and as Paul's calling us to. He goes on. For we have no merit to plead and no excuse to make. Remember, several times over already in chapters 1 and 2, Paul has declared they are without excuse, both Jew and Gentile. That's us too. We are without excuse. And we have nothing to plead. We, too, stand before God speechless and condemned apart from Christ. Praise be to God, the benediction we've heard week in and week out, where it says we stand before God at peace in the grace that he has given to us through Christ. And that is so that we can then take that back into the world where we will suffer, we'll learn to endure, our character will be shaped in the image of Christ, and we actually will find hope. Isn't that the odd direction to find hope? You're not going to find hope on Twitter. Trust me, I tried. You're not going to find hope in your bitterness. You're not going to find hope in your curses. You're not going to find hope in maligning your enemies. But you will, strangely, because of the Holy Spirit that is within you, find hope in suffering for, in loving those who are so radically deformed and dehumanized, who we take seriously their separation from God. So, how has, or at currently 
or at current, does sin, and you could take and think about these things, deform your pursuit of God? How is sin causing you to not cultivate the fruit of the Spirit or fruits in keeping with repentance? How is sin deforming your understanding of God as revealed in Scripture? Do you have some wacky views of Scripture that, are, that, that just aren't like the whole sweep of Scripture, just don't even really fit into the gospel? Do you have some kind of distorted views of God's sovereignty being displayed in your anxiety and fear and bitterness at current in this culture? Is your speech being deformed by sin? What's coming out of your mouth? Because Christ makes it very clear that that is the evidence of the wellspring of your heart. He also makes it clear that that is, and this is fearsome, I hope you're not behind me in line because we're going to be there a while, every word, silly word, every word that you spoke that was contrary to the gospel will have to be done away with. How about your ability to love your neighbor? Is that being deformed by sin? And again, some of you like to swing the pendulum hard and, and say, well, Cameron is up there telling us not to take sin seriously and just go around loving people that, that, that are destroying the church and destroying our country. That isn't what I said at all. I said you ought to take sin so seriously that you recognize the judgment that is coming for all who are separated from God regardless of religious affiliation, regardless of who they vote for, regardless of the ideas that they hold that make your life safer and more secure. And may we remember that judgment begins in the house of the Lord and that many who think they are in will find, no, in fact, you are out. And that should cause us to take it so seriously that we would want for our friends and neighbors to know the full truth of the gospel and be shaped and formed into the image of Christ, which we should long for and be cultivating in ourselves. How's sin affecting your experience of peace in Christ? See, I get it. There's a lot of funky stuff coming our way all the time in culture. I, I get it. There are barbarians at the gates, various gates of various cities and various things. But if you think that any of that's going to change without people being transformed into the image of Christ, if you think by vanquishing those things and hating those people that you're going to accomplish anything, you will not. All you will do is add to the body count that the Lord is displeased with. We have to remember that we are to love sinners in a way that takes all of this more seriously than anybody else. And the only transformation that's going to come. And this is where maybe what we're discovering is we fail to, to believe in the power of the gospel. That it can save to the uttermost as scripture declares. That there are people who are beyond saving. Oh, you. Now, will that ultimately be true? Yes. Can you name them? Can you point to the various people groups from which these people will come? Be careful. That is not for you. Your calling is to be indiscriminate in a sense and being willing to love the very enemies of God and cultivate that in and through Christ-like character.
This is what Paul is trying to remind them of before he brings them to the great and glorious truth of the propitiation or the payment of Christ for their sins. So Romans 3, 9 through 18 teaches us that all of humanity is united in being thoroughly deformed by sin. And because of that, there is their need for reformation in Christ alone. That is the only solution. That is the only solution that has any eternal value. That is the only solution that will do anything to make any of this world anything close to a better place. So church, would you, would you join me in having the courage to put yourself in the dock, to put yourself before these passages and ask the Holy Spirit to show you. I'm going to be doing it. I'm going to be on a prayer retreat later this week. I'm going to do this right out of the gate and get it over with because it's probably going to hurt. It already has hurt. It is hurting. And would you long for our church growing in Christ's likeness, which means that we would have a greater affection for our enemies. I get it. That's a paradox. And there's tension. And if you're wondering exactly what does that mean, my schedule is open. Come talk to me. Come talk to any of the elders, any of the leaders, any of the deacons. We would be happy, and, and we should, wrestle with how. How are we supposed to love somebody who says these kinds of things or does these kinds of things? What is it that we can be doing? Now, you've got to talk spheres of influence. It's not about what, what some dictator is doing in, across the world. It's what's going on and in, in where you are because of God, God's sovereign placement of you as instrument. And so let's not be afraid to wrestle with these truths. Let's not be afraid to grow more Christ-like, though it will hurt. Let's not be afraid to actually become ambassadors of reconciliation, whose speech and actions reflect the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us enough to put us in the dock, that you don't want us to forget who we are without Christ and who we return to when we forget that we're in Christ. God, thank you that you are willing to say the hard things to us in and through your word. Thank you that we can bear fruits in keeping with repentance because of what Christ has done for us. We don't have to atone for this, but we must receive that atonement. And we must work in the frame of the means of grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to grow and become more Christ-like. Would you love us that much? Would you help us to be instruments in your redemptive hands? Would you break us where we need to be broken? And would you build us up where we need to be built up? In Christ's name, amen.